Well, hey, good morning, Arbor. It's good to see you. Hey, when uh, my, my, my family, my, uh, my, my wife's side of the family has a piece of property at Hood Canal, and we go there uh, every summer. We get a chance to go there kind of at the, the beginning. It's when it's Maggie's homecoming. We kind of get away, and we kind of go celebrate her life at this place in Hood Canal. And uh, we go there on a regular basis. My wife grew up there. And the last time we went this last summer, we went there, and you got, it's beautiful, you guys. It's like a cabin right on the water. There's a tree right on the, um, right on the edge of the water with a swing that swings over the top. And, and, and this year, we went there. And when we went there, we went to the swing, and the kids want to get to the swing right away. But right by the swing is a place to sit down, like a log, where you just kind of sit. And it's super enjoyable to sit and look out in the water. But this last year when we went, um, I realized when we went to sit down and the kids started to swing that there was a lot of bees around, um, l- more than normal. And, uh, and so then I looked around and realized there was more and more. And I realized that bees has actually, the bees had made a nest in the log and underneath the log that we were sitting on. And so I realized the kids would be playing there for the entire week that we were there. So what I had to do is I knew that I had to take care of the nest. And so we were out a ways away from like society. And so what we ended up doing is we had to, we had to handle it the old fashioned way, which was, you know, with a stick. And so... So I ripped it open, and I start taking, you know, move everybody into the house and move the bees' nest, and, and I'm, I'm hitting it, and I'm knocking it apart, and, you know, if you love bees and I'm a jerk, then I apologize, right? But I took the bees out as much as I possibly could, but they were all over the place. It was a way bigger nest than I thought of. It was, went into the ground. It was everywhere, and so there was way more bees than I anticipated. And so after a while, I had to let it swirl down and get away because I couldn't be around there with all the bees. So I went into the house, and my wife and I are inside the house, and we're chilling with the kids. And the next thing we know is we hear screaming coming from outside by the, uh, by the swing. And we thought to ourselves, what is that? Well, that's our son. And our son, when we look out there, um, has a stick, and he's swinging it in the air at all the bees. And, and we run out there, and he's screaming, because now he's getting stung all over the place. And I just run through and grab him and pick him up. And he is, um, he is upset. He has been stung probably about 10 times he got stung. And I asked Percy, what in the world were you doing? Why were you, what were you doing? He says, I was hitting the nest. And I asked him, why were you hitting the nest? And it was one of the sweetest responses you're ever going to hear from your son, which was, I want to be like you, daddy, is what he said. And uh, it's sweet, but it's terrifying, is it not? (laughs) Because then you have to ask the question, what kind of example am I? I mean, that made me think of a statement that Paul has said, and he said this, one of the boldest statements in all scripture by any human being is this, is he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example. Follow what I do. In other words, emulate what I do because I'm emulating Christ. And it made me ask the question, and it makes me ask the question every time I read that, am I a good example to follow? Am I Christ-like? Paul also wrote this. He said this. He said, in your lives, you should, so he's giving us instructions here. He said, you should think and act. So that's like basically everything we do. You should think and act like Christ Jesus. Probably the best person to say it was John, and he said this, uh, disciple of Jesus. He said, whoever says he abides in him, so remains in him, is connected to him, anyone who says that he walks with Jesus or is a Christian ought to walk just like Jesus walked. Just like 
Jesus, like Christ, Christ-like. The theological word for that is sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming like Christ. This is what Paul refers to when he says, work out your salvation in fear and in trembling. That is sanctification, the process of becoming Christ-like. It is the second stage or the center act of salvation. On the other side of the equation, on the beginning, you have justification. Justification is where salvation starts. That means simply to be put into right standing with God. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He took our place, forgave our sins. That is justification. The way to remember it is just as if I never sinned. Justification. That's the way to remember it. That's how it starts off. Then it moves to sanctification. And on the other side, it will end in glorification. Glorification is the fulfillment of God's promise. It is the moment that we step out of this life into eternity, into heaven. We have a new body, no pain, no sorrow, no hurt, no cats. It's going to be perfect, perfect, perfect. Right? It's going to be amazing. That's glorification, justification. Smack dab in the middle is where we live. Sanctification. The process of becoming like Christ. This is our now. Every single Christian that exists on earth today is in this spiritual state. It is a try and fail. It is a wrestle and yet rest in. It is a fall down on your face and then the spirit picks you back up and walks you in grace. It is a slow cook, my friends. It is sanctification. It is that process that when we look in the mirror and we say, who do I see? He would, you know, most of us would say, well, I see me. But the idea is that we want to see him. In fact, there's this, there's this movement, there's this, this cultural, I don't know if it's a millennial movement or what, where people will say the phrase, well, you just do you. You do you. And honestly, that one's hard for me. I, I, that, I get that that's trying to encourage people to be themselves and whatnot, but I say, let's do him. That would be a whole lot better than us just doing what we think is best. Let's do him. Let's be more like Christ. The great evangelist, Billy Graham, he said this. He said, being a Christian is more than just an instantaneous conversion because that's what he's famous for, right? He is famous for evangelism and the conversion situation, right? Stadiums. It is a daily process. Here's what he said. Being a Christian is a daily process whereby you grow to be more and more like Christ. J.C. Ryle, an evangelical bishop of the 1800s, said this. says, he that would be conformed to Christ's image and become Christ-like must be constantly studying Christ himself. So if we're going to be Christ-like, we're going to need to study Christ himself, and so that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. From now until Christmas, we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to study Jesus, investigate Jesus, focus on Jesus. We're going to get back to the basics, people. We're going to get back to simply observing the God-man whom Paul said we are supposed to be in imitators of. So the idea, the hope, the goal, the aim is this, is to investigate Christ in hopes to emulate Christ. We want to investigate Christ for the next few, like month and a half, in order to emulate Christ. I have been working in my house for quite some time. I've been redoing the kitchen. It's going real fast since June. 
right? So <laughs> killing it. A couple weeks ago, I put in cement countertops. I don't suggest doing it on your own. I had Chase actually to help me. That was wonderful. But prior to Chase helping me on that, I had watched videos on concrete countertop solutions. I'll just tell you right there. The owner of the company, his name's Ed. Really good guy. Ed and I, we're really good friends. You want to know why? I watched 400 of his videos on how to put in concrete countertops. Like literally, Ed and this one, Ed and that one. How do you, you know, how do you lay down the foundation? How do you pour the concrete? How do you mix it? Ed was in that video. Ed was in this video. Ed was in that video. I had a struggle where when I was pouring in the countertops, something went wrong. And so I called Concrete Countertop Solutions. They couldn't solve the situation. They took me to this person who sent me to this person who sent me to this person who sent me to Ed. I got to talk to the owner of the company. Do you know how I know it was Ed? I knew his voice better than my wife's that week. Truly, I knew Ed, and I had watched Ed and how he would do it and how he'd move the, you know, the, the cement around and how he would mix it because I studied Ed. I studied how Ed moved. I apparently knew how Ed talked. I want to do the same coming up to Christmas with Jesus. I want us to study him. I want his voice to be so ingrained in our head that when we hear it, we go, oh, that's Jesus. That's God speaking to me right now. And so what we're going to do over the next month is we're going to look at how Christ preached. We're going to look at how he prayed, how he served, how he forgave, how he loved. And today what we're going to zoom in, we're going to zoom in on how Christ walked. How Christ walked. Now, I don't mean, did Jesus have a limp? Did he sashay a little in his step? You know, did he, did he walk away with a little swagger like Snoop Dogg, you know? We're not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this. Is there anything that we can glean from how Christ carried himself as he walked along? Because, friends, he walked a lot, a lot. Almost everywhere where Jesus went, he walked. Now, he didn't have a pedometer, but it is estimated that Jesus walked about 3,000 miles during his ministry— And it is estimated that he walked about 21,000 miles during his lifetime. There is no reference of Jesus running in the Bible, just walking. There's no reference of him jumping into a chariot. He rode a donkey for a tiny little bit, and we see. But Jesus walked everywhere he went. Even on water, Jesus walked. Jesus walked everywhere he went, and you get the impression that when you look at the Gospels, and you look at Matthew, and you look at Mark, and you look at Luke, and you look at John, and you look at Jesus in the midst of those, you know what's amazing that stands out? He was never in a hurry. Have you noticed that? He never seemed to be in a rush. Oh, I got to get here, or I got to do this, or I got to do that. He was never in haste. He was never in a rush. Jesus took his sweet old time. He took his time. Like my grandpa, he took his time. My grandpa, oh, I loved him. He was great, except when we were driving. My grandpa, I'm not kidding, would drive 10 under the speed limit. Not the speed limit, not five under, but 10 under. And you think I'm exaggerating, but I remember driving next to him. And we would be driving, and we'd be sitting in there, and lines of cars would jump up behind us. And this is in Eatonville, where there's no traffic, right? No traffic whatsoever. And we'd have cars lined up there, and then they would fly by, and they would honk, and they'd give us a wave, (laughs) a really nice wave. 
And my grandpa would sit there with 10 and 2 on the wheel, as cute, like cool as a cucumber, and he'd just be like, I don't know why everybody's in such a rush. Like, they're just going the speed limit, Grandpa. Amazing. My grandpa was not in a rush at all, and Jesus was just like that. He was not in a rush. Everywhere he went, he was present in that situation. And when we reread John 2, look what it says here. It says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk just like Jesus walked. Jesus walked, and we are to do the same. We are to walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. And so how did he walk? Let's look at it. First and foremost, Jesus, and this is interesting, was led by the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit when he walked. And you might think that's odd. Why would Jesus, God himself, need to be led by the Holy Spirit? What is so crazy, though, is even Jesus took direction from the Spirit on where he was to go. The Gospel of Luke says this. It says, then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, and we talked about that uh, about a month ago, full of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit living in us, upon us, guiding us where we are to go. If you did not hear that series, I suggest you go back and listen to the series on the Holy Ghost. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led. He was guided. He was directed. How? By the Spirit into the wilderness. He was going one way. The Holy Spirit changed him into an entirely another direction, out into the wilderness, out where it's uncomfortable, out where there's no food, out where there's no water. He sent him out into the wilderness. At another point in scripture, John 4, verse 3, this is very interesting. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. Now, verse 4 is where it's interesting. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, that needed is a very interesting word there because if you were to look at a map at that point in time, Jesus didn't need to go through Samaria in order to get to uh, Galilee. It wasn't a requirement. He didn't have to go there. There were other routes he could have taken, but yet it says needed. In fact, theologians speculate on this is that because the Jews won't do anything, didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans, they would often take the outside routes. It is known that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would go around Samarita, Samarita so that they didn't have to deal with those people because they didn't associate with them. But yet Jesus says, I had to go through Samaria. It wasn't a necessity in a directional sense. It was a necessity in a spiritual sense. There was someone he needed to meet, the woman at the well, at Jacob's well in particular. He knew that as he walked through there, he could share the news of the kingdom. And not only do the Jewish people need it, but the Samaritans need the good news as well. And so he went a different direction led by the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit. And it is the same with us, friends. We are to be, when we walk, led by the Spirit. And for a lot of people, that's difficult. Maybe it's difficult because you don't want to be led, you want to do the leading. Or maybe it's difficult because you're not sure how to be led by the Spirit. Well, to be led by the Spirit means you simply need to listen and respond. I don't know if you watch TV, but on the Ellen show, they do this thing called In, uh, in Your Ears. 
And that's where Ellen puts a microphone in the ears of a celebrity, sends them out into the community, and then whatever she says, whatever she tells them to do, they must do. It is hilarious if you've never seen it before. But what's really crazy is that that is exactly how we are to respond when it comes to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. We should be so in tune with his voice, like me and my buddy Ed, right, that when we hear his voice, we automatically know what to do. And not only we do it because we've heard his voice by reading his word and understanding what his voice sounds like, but by listening to that still small whisper that he speaks, but we also should have the courage to go and do it, should we not? We should. And we should step out when we feel like the Spirit is saying, hey, go talk to this person. They need to talk to you or go engage over there or start serving and doing this. Or maybe you should stop doing that. That's the voice of the Spirit saying to you, hey, do what I'm asking you to do. And we should have the courage to do that and to be led by him. The Apostle Paul says this, and it's amazing. If we live by the Spirit, so if we claim to be in Christ, let us also walk by the Spirit walk by the Spirit. Jesus himself was led by the Spirit. Second thing that Jesus did while he was walking, all this time that he was walking, you'll notice this all over the Gospels, is that Jesus invited others along. He invited others to come with you, with him. He said 22 times in the New Testament, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Peter, he said that to Andrew, teacher of the law, he said that to the rich young ruler, Philip, Nathaniel. He would say to everybody that he came across, not everybody, a lot of people, he'd say, come and follow me, walk with me. Matthew, the calling of Levi, the tax collector, he had a bad reputation, but yet this is what Jesus said to him based upon Matthew's account. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew. So Matthew is talking in the third person here. Matthew, and he was sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said, come and follow me. And Jesus said to him, so that's what he said to him, come and follow me. So Matthew got up and followed him. In the gospel of Mark, what's interesting is that Mark says that he left everything. So he left his job, he left everything, and went and followed him. That is the power of the ask. That is the power of the invitation. What's very interesting to me is I wonder why he just immediately got up and followed him. I always wonder, was there something in Jesus' eyes? Like if you watch that old movie in Ben-Hur where everybody just stares at Jesus and they're mesmerized by him. Or if you watch Jesus of Nazareth or something like that. Was there something in Jesus' eyes that compelled people to want to follow him? Or was it his reputation? Whatever it was, we know that the way that they were invited was an actual ask. There are people out there, friends, who are waiting they are longing, they are lonely, and all they want is someone to ask, hey, come with me, come along, come with me. Now, practically speaking, does that mean invite them to church? Yeah, invite them to church. I love that. Hopefully this place, every single Sunday, you, you would feel welcome to invite someone to come on a Sunday morning and join you. Oftentimes we don't, we hesitate, maybe because we're fear of rejection or too busy or it's not that important. But just ask. Some people will not step forward in a church, period. And so ask them to grab dinner. 
Start a relationship. Grab some coffee. Go out for a beer. Watch a Seahawks game, which last week, that was awesome. <laughs> Ask them to shoot pool. Best day, man, I got this morning. <laughs> Ask them to cook a meal. For a needing family, join you to cook a meal or bake cookies to send out to your neighborhood. Or invite them to go to a Bible study. Maybe they won't go into a church, but maybe they'd step foot in talking about God's word in a Bible study. I remember having Bible studies in a bar with friends of mine because they wouldn't go to church, but they would have a conversation about Jesus and we'd sit there right at the bar top and pull out God's word. And this is what it says, right? Ask them to go fishing. That's what I want to do. Ask them to go shopping. That's what I don't want to do. <laughs> to go on a run. Oh my gosh, it's getting worse. <laughs> Ask them to go catch a movie, right? Or, or to go to Thanksgiving or I don't know. Just invite them along into your life. Start a relationship. Most people want to belong before they believe. And so hopefully they can belong in a relationship with you where they'd be safe to see, oh, what is different about that person? Oh, yes, they're just like Christ. I want to hear about this Christ guy. Tell me about him. It takes baby steps. It starts with an invitation. It's what we call around here invitational living. And if we want to walk like Christ, we've got to invite other people along. The other part. When it comes to walking, Jesus walked everywhere he went, right? He walked and was led by the Spirit. He invited others along, and probably my favorite part is this. As Jesus walked, he allowed interruptions. Jesus allowed interruptions. The average American worker experiences 50 interruptions in a day, and 70% of those have nothing to do with work. And if you are a mother of small children, you have all 50 of those before you leave the bathroom in the morning. <laughs> Jesus was constantly and consistently, over and over throughout his word, interrupted. Catch this. He seemed to be all right with that. He is the most important person that has ever lived, and yet he was highly interruptible. Highly interruptible. In Mark chapter 2, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's sharing the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, the roof starts to open up and junk and dirt start to fall down and they lower a man from the ceiling. Talk about an interruption in your preaching. I don't know how I would handle something like that. What does Jesus do? He heals him in that moment. Matthew chapter eight, Jesus is sleeping. Oh, that's a good place to be. And his disciples interrupt him to wake him up because they're scared. And he doesn't yell at them, right? He does say, oh, ye of little faith. But what he does is he calms the storm. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is walking alongside the temple. And a guy named Bartimaeus yells out, son of David, and calls Jesus and interrupts him. He can't see. He is blind. Jesus stops takes a moment, and heals him. In Luke chapter 7, there's a prostitute that comes and interrupts a dinner party and really, in a dramatic fashion, throws herself down at the feet of Jesus, cries, wipes her, tear, her tears, wipes his, his feet, and she wipes them with her hair to dry him off. Total interruption. But Jesus right then and there forgives her of her sins. In Mark chapter 5, you have an interruption of an interruption. It's amazing. A synagogue ruler 
goes after and grabs Jesus right when he gets off the boat and says, hey, you gotta come heal my daughter. His name was Jairus. And he starts to, start to go that direction. So he's interrupted from what he's doing. And on the way from that interruption, a woman who's been bleeding for most of her life interrupts him again. And he stops and says, who touched me? And he heals her in that moment and then continues from that interruption to the previous interruption and goes and heals Jairus' daughter in that moment. It's amazing. Jesus allowed interruptions in his life. And what do we seem to do? Oftentimes, we are annoyed by interruptions. Marcia Libera, famous storyteller, said this, she said, if you had slept in the same house or field with Jesus, awakened with him, eaten with him, and helped him, what would you have observed? One thing you would notice is that Jesus gave himself almost entirely to what we would consider interruptions. Most of the teachings, healings, and wonders we see in his life were responsive, seemingly unplanned, he, speaking of Jesus, trusted what the Father allowed to cross his path. Was the exactly that. It was from the Father. Jesus always seemed willing for things when they got messy. One could say that Jesus' ministry was often interrupted. Or one could say that Jesus' ministry was interruptions. There is a difference. And we can complain about interruptions that come in and distract and delay us from our work, or we could actually accept that interruptions oftentimes are the work that God is putting right before us. And the reason I say that is because oftentimes interruptions come from one thing, people. Interruptions come from people. And these are the people that Jesus died for. These are the people that God loved, and he's bringing them before us. Dylan Burroughs, who wrote the book Faith Acts, wrote this. He said, when Jesus was interrupted, he started where he was and helped those in need who were nearest to him. There is always another mission out there, the next cause, the next city, the next country, that seems to be the most important mission we could pursue. Yet Jesus illustrates that our greatest mission is often the person that is right in front of us. As Jesus walked, he paused. He would stop. And friends, he would even change direction to simply answer questions, to connect with children, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, the blind, and the broken. He calmed storms. He raised the dead friends. He even paid his taxes. He was willing to take on interruptions, and so should we. I will shoot super straight with you. This is the hardest one for me. Being led by the Spirit, I think that's great, and I, I think that's adventurous. I love the idea of listening to God as I move along. Inviting people along, that sounds fun too, but stopping, pausing from getting something accomplished, that's difficult for me. And maybe I'm not alone in that. Maybe that's hard for you too, to allow interruptions to come and be okay with those. 
and not see them as distractions. As C.S. Lewis said, he said that we see them as life. Like the, the interruptions in our life are oftentimes, that's life, that's real life. I don't often tell stories where I got something right because I don't want to appear bigger or more important than I really am because I'm not that important. But there was one time when I allowed an interruption to happen and I got it right. And God did something with it. This was at a time when Maggie was sick and she was going through um, a surgery. And when she was waking up from that surgery, when we, when we put her down, it was very traumatic. Um, I'll never forget that. They tried to put her under, and it did not go well. I went back there with her, and they forced the mask on her. I've never had a moment where I wanted to punch a doctor so hard in my life. Um, and so they wanted to make sure, they gave me special permission, because that went so bad, to go back into the nurse's section and to be there when Maggie woke up. Not sure if she would remember, but because I was upset, they allowed me to go back there. So I'm back in this place where only nurses are allowed. And I'm back there waiting and I'm sitting by the bed for my little girl to wake up whenever she's gonna wake up. And there was a nurse that was assigned to her that wasn't allowed to leave, so I was there with her. And you can imagine in this moment that my mind is not set on having a conversation. My daughter is sick, the weight of that, knowing that she's going to die, that there's nothing that we can do outside of a miracle, there was a lot of weight that was in there in that situation. So I didn't want to have chit-chat. But I'm sitting there, and the nurse starts talking with me a little bit. And I viewed it in that moment as an interruption, truly an interruption. At first, I kind of just short responses. She was asking me about my daughter. She, I don't think she knew in the very beginning that Maggie had a terminal illness. And so she was just waking up from getting her port installed. And so she's, we're having this conversation and we start talking about it and I realized I, at that point feeling like a little bit spirit led, maybe I should engage on the conversation. So I start to engage on the conversation and tell her this is my daughter and, you know, and, and I love her and this is a situation and this is just super hard. And then what she starts to do at that moment when I shared my pain was she started to share with me her pain. And her pain was that she couldn't have children. She worked at Children's Hospital and she couldn't have children. And they had been trying and trying and trying for years. And I think God orchestrated that conversation in perfect timing because at that time I worked at the church of adoption. Like if you've ever been to Overlake, they are enthralled with adoption and I think it's amazing. And what was really cool about that is she started to talk about how they can't afford to walk through the adoption process and the lawyer fees and all of this kind of stuff. And at that point in time, I knew a friend of mine who was a lawyer who did this for free. And so I just said, hey, you should connect with this guy. In fact, I gave her his number and we had a conversation on adoption and I think adoption is amazing. You know, Jesus says true religion is looking after widows and orphans. What better way to invest into an individual than to go really deep in adoption? We are adopted by Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And so I connected her to my friend, and I didn't know she'd ever call. And that conversation came and it went. And at the moment, it was just, it really did feel like an interruption, but I felt like at a moment, I remember going, all right, I'll engage on this. I'm a pastor. Maybe I should, right? And so I did. Here's what I got one year later. I got a picture of this right here, and this is Amy and her husband and their daughter. And they walked through the process, and my buddy Andrew helped and made it happen for them. And I didn't know any of this 
And all of a sudden, I got an email, and they just said, hey, you had a conversation in the hospital. And I'm like, I don't remember what you're talking about. And then I did remember once I saw the picture, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Amy. And now she has a daughter. Because God brought an interruption into my life, and in a very critical moment of my life, I took a moment and had that interruption, and I, I, I didn't take it as an interruption. I took it as an opportunity and guided it in a de- direction, and look what God did with that. It's amazing. It's amazing. I've never talked with her since, but God has clearly blessed her, and God has clearly intervened on that. Friends, personally, I want to be like Christ. Am I like Christ? i got a long way to go. I want to be just like Jesus. I want to walk like him. I want to be led by the Spirit. I want to invite others along, the least of these along, and I want to allow interruptions to happen. I want that, and I know that I'm not alone. I know that many of you, most of you probably, want the same thing, that we want to look like Christ. C.S. Lewis says that we would be little Christs walking around on this planet. But friends, it's not an easy path. The path that Christ took was difficult, it was hard, it was lonely. The moment that you try to live like Christ, you first realize, one, it's impossible without God's grace. And then two, it's very lonely that you're called to be that direction. But we don't have to be alone if we're doing it together. I want to look in the mirror, and I want to be able to see less of me and more of him day after day after day. That's the goal, my friends. That is the goal. I'll conclude with the words of Peter. Here's what he said. He said, for this, you have been called, means set apart, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, here it is, an example that you might follow in his steps. I am so grateful for his example. And a little bit scared that I must follow in such big footsteps. But that's what the grace of God is all about. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.